What is the cohort experience and why does it work? For adult learners, signing up for a learning experience and completing it is really hard. Cohort-based courses have a couple things that are really valuable in that. You have deadlines. You have a structure. And then in addition to that, you have this social mechanism that's creating this sort of positive inertia towards completion. And that is really powerful. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtual. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey, everybody. Ish here, today joined by Julia Stiglitz, CEO and co-founder of CoreRise. Julia, so great to have you on the podcast today. Would you be able to introduce yourself real quick? Yes. Hi, Ish. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm Julia. I am the CEO and co-founder of a new startup called CoreRise, um, and I've been in education my whole career, <laughs> um, and great to be here. Yeah, and and listeners, uh, Julia is a founder now, but when I met her, she was one of the sharpest investors that I have met in this space, uh, and I've spoken to a lot of edtech investors, and we originally met when my company virtually was finishing up Y Combinator, the startup accelerator, and we were in that fundraising process, happened to get connected to Julia, and she completely changed my perspective on online education and kind of where it's headed. And now she's working in the space. And so you know that this is a company that we're going to want to pay attention to. So Julia, walk us through that journey. Obviously, you spent a ton of time in the space. You eventually became a partner at GSV and an opportunity so good came that you couldn't resist but switch over to the founder path. So walk us through that journey. Yeah, I mean, it it starts... I mean, it really actually starts a long time ago. Um, I, I started my career as a Teach for America teacher. Um, and then I, I, I worked for TFA. I went to grad school. I, I uh, ran the Google Apps for Education team. Um, that's, that was my first experience in EdTech. And then I was recruited over to Coursera before the company launched when there was um, 12 12 or 10 people at the company. So um, it was quite small. Um, and I was there for a little over six years. Um, my last tour of duty at Coursera was starting and then scaling the enterprise business, um, which we took from, you know, pitching the concept to the team to about 1,400 or so companies. Um, and then I left and I was on the, the venture side investing for uh, about three years. Um, and it was when the pandemic hit and the challenges associated with online education were really in all of our faces, uh, that I sort of tapped back into some of the problems that I had observed while at Coursera and decided that I had to, um, work to solve it. So the, specifically the problems that I saw from, from being at Coursera were, you know, one, this incredible demand for upskilling and reskilling, particularly technical um, in, in technical fields. So our, uh, I remember our, our largest, our first really large customer, Coursera, uh, was an insurance company who wanted to roll out data science to literally tens of thousands of people at the company um, as the company was really becoming a data company. Um, and then the second, the second thing I observed was that while Coursera and the asynchronous platforms were amazing at getting content out into the world, um, for the majority of learners, they needed something more. And this was evidenced by the completion rates that are about 4 to 6%. And so, yeah, took that, convinced my husband to run a pilot with me. Um, and uh, he's an engineer. We taught 
random people from the internet JavaScript with the sole goal of seeing, can we actually get people to complete? Like, is that possible in an online setting, especially if they have paid nothing and there's like sort of like no sunk costs associated with it? Can you get people to engage and complete? And we did. We had 80% of students complete. They spent on average 12 hours with us. And I realized that there was really something here and, 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 and it was, it could actually be scalable. And so I pulled some of my former Coursera colleagues, Sarah Bahaj, who was um, an early Coursera engineer. And then uh, he worked at uh, Google Research um, and then Neva and then an early product manager, Jake Samuelson. And uh, we teamed up to form Clorize. That's so exciting. I, I mean, I have to ask this question. As as a VC, you probably saw so many opportunities across your desk. You've probably seen so many pitches. Why was this the opportunity that made you take the leap and join the dark side? Um, I think it really has to do with this, like this problem that I'm sort of obsessed with, of like how do you increase access to education, which is what. You know, it, it is a common thread through all my experience from Teach for America to why I joined Coursera. But it, I think, you know, why the approach that we're taking and, you know, why co-rise is realizing that just access is not enough. Um, and I think in terms of the sort of why now is recognizing that um, that we could solve it. Like when I was, you know, when I was at Coursera, I thought, you know, you could have um, either you had access, like, you know, you had millions of people getting access to this content, or you had engagement, which is what I experienced as an in-person teacher. But I didn't think you could get both. Um, And uh, at least for me, you know, during the pandemic, um, my views on that changed. And um, I realized that using both technology as well as how people were connecting online um, socially, that you could use that in order to to get both. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And listeners, you've probably heard, heard me talk a lot about this online education 1.0 versus online education 2.0. Funny enough, Julia here is the one who introduced me to that framework. So, Julia, uh, talk us to, through this framework and how it's evolved uh, over the years uh, for you. Yeah, so um, uh, we, were, we were chatting right before this about um, that my thinking on the framework has actually evolved a little bit. Now there's three parts to it. So the first part, 1.0, was really about access. And I think I think people sometimes forget how valuable that was when it came out. So, you know, 2012, um, if you wanted access to the content from these amazing professors, you just couldn't get it unless you were at those institutions. Um, and so opening up access to content for people to um, accelerate their careers and learn what they wanted to learn was radical at the time. Like it was a really big deal that Stanford and Yale and all these universities were opening up its gates. Um, and there were lots of other players that were part of that same. Um, they, were, they were also trying to solve that problem like Udemy and um, Pluralsight um, and YouTube. Um, and uh, it was the problem to be solved at the time um, and extremely valuable. And, you know, millions of learners have benefited from it. I think where we've moved is um, beyond access to a lot of companies, especially when you look at internal L&D 
are trying to measure something. I, I call it sort of the activity phase, which is what we're in today, where you're they're measuring, you know, somebody watched some videos or somebody did, you know, some quizzes. Um, but it it's unclear exactly what all that those metrics mean. Um, and where I think we're trying to go and where we need to go is um, towards outcomes, which is what what was the ultimate outcome for the learner. Um, and what was the ultimate outcome if it's for internal L&D for the company and, and figuring out how to measure those and figuring out how to make sure that students are actually getting those. Because learning, you know, it's, it's, it's adult professional learning. It's a means, like it's just a means to an end. And the end for most students is around their career. And that is what we need to measure. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I mean, I, we have seen this transformation where, uh, I like one of the most exciting things about this education transformation that's happening right now is it's so much from stem from this kind of age of the Internet, where now that informa- information is so widely accessible, all this exchange is happening. Industries are rapidly evolving. And so what we thought once was this like one four year degree that would last you the entirety of your career just doesn't work anymore. And so we constantly need to be skilling and upskilling to, again, like you said, get to the ends that we want. And so as our role evolves, as we transition careers, we need to be picking up new skills and education is the means to getting there. So one of the trends that emerged around COVID was this kind of CBC cohort-based courses. And I'm curious how CoRISE kind of ties into this kind of trend of, I guess, live community cohort-based learning. Yeah, so our courses um, are run as cohorts. So we have students that are in the classes together and there um, there is a live component to them with an instructor and, the, and they're run as cohorts. Um, uh, I think cohorts can be so powerful, but I think it's worth sort of breaking down like why they're powerful um, and and why they're helpful in terms of a learner actually completing it. Um, and there's a couple mechanisms at play when you think about like, okay, well, why, you know, what is the cohort experience and why does it work? Um, the first is understanding that like for adult learners, it is um, signing up for a learning experience and completing it is really hard. Like the rewards associated with learning are often long term. It, you know, getting a job or, or um, uh, getting a raise or uh, doing new projects. It's normally not immediate. And meanwhile, as an adult learner, you have so many things that, that are give you immediate rewards, like, you know, watching like the Game of Thrones or whatever it is. Um, and so uh, just like it's really hard to go to the gym or it's really hard to avoid chocolate cake, um, the same thing is true with adult learning. And I think if you start from that premise and then you start thinking about, OK, well, how given that, given that it is hard, how do we make it easier for adults and how do we create these sort of uh, shorter reward feedback loops that um, that get learners to actually complete. And so cohort-based courses have a couple things that are really um, valuable in that. You have deadlines. Um, you have a structure. You, ha- you don't have to sort of plan out your time because the live sessions, the um, things that pop up in your calendar, it plans it for you and keeps you on track and helps you actually complete. Um, and then in addition to that, you have this, you know, social mechanism that's creating this sort of positive inertia towards completion. Um, and that is really powerful. We, uh, in our classes, 
people hand all of their work in in public. Um, and so that all of the projects are due on Sundays and students start handing their work in on Wednesdays. And that is really powerful social proof that uh, that you should hand in your work. And it's a really helpful reminder that this is happening and and you should actually do it. So um, cohorts are amazing at, at, at doing all of that. And that helps students ultimately complete. I would say the additional things that cohorts do and sort of social learning do does is it allows learners to interact on the content. Um, and for most learners, they need that type of engagement. Like they need to be able to ask questions. They uh, they need to be able to answer students' questions in order to more deeply understand the concepts. And that type of engagement is much easier to do when, when you have people going through an experience simultaneously. I think one difference might be, you know, I don't know if we'll have cohorts on our platform forever. Like we are not, you know, cohorts is not necessarily what we're wedded to. What we're wedded to is these sort of mechanisms that get students to be successful. And um, if we can figure out other ways to do so, we'll do it. Oh, I love that. And I think it's 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 such an interesting insight because I think people get too wrapped up in these trends, right? Like cohort based courses, MOOCs, things like that. And I think the important thing that we've discovered on the podcast is is the best learning experiences at the end of the day have accountability built in and cohort just happens to be a mechanism for creating that accountability, but it's not the only one. And so you can kind of mix and match these accountability mechanisms. Cohorts is one of them, just removing the need for them to have to schedule time for the learning, uh, that community support. These are all mechanisms and you can mix and match them depending on the format of your program. So, I'm so glad that you were able to clearly articulate that. That's awesome. Um, speaking of which, you know, one of the things about getting wrapped up in trends, it definitely seems like this like cohort-based course trend is like uh, the hype has died down a little bit. And I'd be curious to hear your take on why do you feel like that might be? Um, I don't – well, I think it's – like I said, I think cohorts are a mechanism – um, and so I, um, I, I, like, I don't think they are the solution. I think they're, they're a strategy. Um, so I, yeah, so, um, I think what is going to be persistent is more around social learning and community. Like, I think that is actually the sort of one of the broader underlying trends where, Using the 1.0 framework, one of the things about like EdTech 1.0 was that it was a single player experience where an individual was going online and taking this machine learning course all by their, themselves. Even though that there were millions, you know, millions of other people taking the course with them, they weren't actually there. None of that was exposed or um, made to be part of the experience. And I think that is actually one of the the bigger shifts. Um, that we're seeing now and, you know, cohorts are a, a subset of that, but, um, this idea of, of more social learning and how you, uh, how you can learn with others in really powerful ways. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear you. Um, and I think part of it, at least from what I'm seeing is that the hype is dying down, at least because a lot of these cohort based courses that we saw were being creator led, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, creator led going direct to consumer. And some, a very small number of uh, people have made this work. So building a second brain, write a passage, Elliot Bill's part-time YouTuber Academy. But, but at least one of the realizations we had is that creators don't necessarily create the best teachers, right? Like some of them do, but not all of them, not all of them love teaching. 
And fundamentally, the court-based courses, the court-based learning programs that we've seen succeed is where they're led by educators, where mm. they see they don't see themselves as creators, and they're not doing this necessarily to just make a living. They're making a living out of it, but they see themselves as educators first, and then mm. maybe creators second. Mm. Um, and also, I think Quellrise is also this like B2B angle. So I'd also be curious to hear about like how how Quellrise thinks about kind of the programs that you guys are building sourcing your instructors and then how did you choose to go after specifically b2b rather than selling these types of this type of content to consumers yeah that's a, it's a great question so um on the creator side so we actually don't find that people need to have taught before or be in education to be excellent teachers um and I uh, most of our instructors have never taught before. And that's also especially like coming from Teach for America. Like I have a firm belief that you can take people who have no experience in teaching. And if you give them the right tools and support, they can be pretty amazing at it. Um, as long as they have the sort of passion and desire. And um, so we actually we, we focus on people that have deep subject subject expertise. Um, and some of those people happen to have large followings. Some of them don't. Um, but they all have deep subject matter expertise and they all have a real passion for teaching. And then what we do is we provide support for them, both in the content creation as well as the course running that allows them to create a pretty amazing learning experience with, um, like I said, with no experience. So our average MPS right now is 78. Some of the, um, uh, or sorry, not 78, 68. Um, uh, but like our, our top courses do have NPSs that are over 80, and many of those are instructors that have never taught before. Um, and so, which is pretty incredible. Like it's, it's, um, it is very possible to have that experience, but it, but they're, they're passionate about it and they're driven about it and they're excited to share their knowledge and information with, you know, hundreds and eventually thousands of, of people on the platform. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I, I do think that there's a uh, I, I I don't think you need to be a creator. Um, I, I don't think you need to be a, an educator in order to create like an excellent class. But you do have to have real depth of expertise and a real passion for what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think one of the things to bring up here is that I think zone of genius is really important. And the reason I bring it up is because a lot of these creator led CBCs, one of the reasons I think a lot of those have not panned out is because it's just a lot of work. Right. When you're building a CBC, these core based learning experiences, you're building an online school mm-hmm. and school means that there's got to be somebody who's doing the marketing. There's somebody who's got to be building the curriculum. Uh, there's got to be somebody who's delivering the education and then managing all the logistics of it. That's a lot of work for one person to be doing. So I'm yeah. curious, like how you've built your system such that uh, you've delegated this work, you've distributed this work. Between what what is the instructor doing versus what is Colrise as a company doing? Yeah, yeah. So most of our um, instructors are working full time in very demanding jobs. Um, so you know, it's like the head of machine learning at, at ShareChat, or um, it is uh, a deep learning researcher in Dermas, a deep learning researcher at at Apple, or um, a, a data engineering manager at Drizzly, like these, they have full time, very demanding jobs that they are very high performing in. 
And for us, we're, we're, we're focused on this technical, these technical skills. And that's where the technical skills live. Like it is, it is in people who are doing the jobs every single day, um, who know the, the sort of intricacies of, of it and can show students how to apply it. So for us, it's been really critical to figure out how you unlock that knowledge from these people who are super, super busy and have so much going on. Um, and so there's two pieces to it. One is the the content production piece, and then the other is the kind of what happens on an ongoing basis with the course running. Um, and I guess the third is the marketing piece. And we we provide support in in in, in all of it. So on the on the um, instructor piece, we uh, we actually work one on one with our instructors. We have a person that's in charge of our of content design and pedagogy who helps the instructors take their ideas and thoughts and um, create a project-based course. And I guess that might be another sort of difference about it with us. The majority of the work that students are doing on our platform is work on, on, on sort of real world projects. That's where they spend the bulk of their time. Um, and, and then, and then we also have an authoring platform, which is where the instructors will write, um, asynchronous content, most of which is text-based. Um, because we found that sort of to be the most efficient way for, for students to learn and the easiest way for our instructors to update their content. Um, so that's on the course creation side. We, we think it takes about three months for someone to create a course working part time. Um, uh, and it's um, and we, you know, we, we give them the sort of support to, to, to be able to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to add that, like, that's sort of the zone of genius that I was talking about, which is you allow your, you're enabling your instructors to do what they do best and take care of everything else around them, which, yeah. which is, I think, where a lot of these creator led CPCs aren't able to kind of, they're not able to do that. There's just too much work for one person to do. So over time, they're like, you know what? I'm just going to go back to creating content and selling async courses where maybe the student experience doesn't matter as much. Yeah, yeah. And designing really good pedagogy is hard. Like, like just like all of the decisions that go into it. Like, is this a good data set? Is this problem engaging? Is there sufficient scaffolding so that you, when you have a class of hundreds of people and you have people coming in from all different levels, are they all able to engage in a meaningful way with the content? Um, it's, is the content aligned sufficiently to the projects and the lecture such that it's going to build towards students actually being able to master. Like it is, you know, this is, it's like real pedagogy. Like it is, it is. Um, and it, uh, it's not easy, um, but it can be done. And uh, instructors are, are, are amazing to work with. Um, and they, they get it quickly with a little bit of guidance and, and with like a platform that's sort of designed to, to create that sort of experience. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Let's talk a little bit about student experience and so or specifically engagement. So one of the things that we found in terms of best measuring student engagement is through a fun little acronym that we learned from uh, the chief learning officer at 2U, uh, which is ABC, attendance, behavior, coursework. And if you have a good pulse on a student's attendance, behavior and coursework, you generally have a good sense of how engaged they are. Uh, what are the mechanisms that you guys have built to track uh, ABC at CoRISE? Yeah, so um, the main, our focus, we, we, we are sort of obsessed with this completion metric. Um, and for us, what that means is that students have successfully completed three of four projects within a course. 
Um, and the projects are substantial and hard. Um, so, you know, in, in the search with machine learning course, they're using a real world data set from Best Buy to actually create a search engine. Um, in the vision course, uh, that, that is going on right now, they created an app that allows you to, uh, see if a, like, identify what type a plant is by the leaf. So, like, they're creating, like, really cool things that are, that are really hard. Um, and, uh, and what we're trying to help them do is be successful in completing those projects. Um, and, and do three of four of them over the course of a month. Um, and so, I, what we're tracking towards is whether they submitted that project at the end of the week, but then we use a ton of data points along the way. So yeah, did they attend the lecture? Um, I, did they attend office hours? Um, I, did they, uh, log into, right now we're using Slack for social. Did they log into Slack and, um, have they participated? Um, all of those things give us an idea of whether or not they're going to hand in the project as well as after they hand in the project, um, I, if, you know, whether or not they did as well as survey data. We have survey data that, that is asking them like if the class is too easy or too hard as well as their MPS and how they're feeling. So all those data points. And then on the back end, what we have, we built out this sort of nudging infrastructure that allows, um, us to do a combination of automated and personalized nudges, um, based on, um, different behaviors that we're seeing in the class. Um, and it's interesting right now that most of the nudges are really behavioral focus on behavior. So focus on encouraging a student to like go to an office hour if they're falling behind or if they didn't attend a lecture, um, giving them the recording of the lecture so they can keep up and participate or, you know, just checking in, um, which also is just really valuable and makes students feel that you care, which, which matters a lot. Um, but where we want to go is have it also be, um, academic based. So like, can we surface up a personalized hint that is going to unlock your learning based on how you're doing in the project or what you're getting stuck on? And so, um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to sort of use this nudging personalized infrastructure, both on the motivational piece as well as sort of on this academic piece. Yeah. And I think it is so undervalued how important student intervention is. And I think it's something that's very underutilized in a lot of these traditional uh, institutions. And I think a big part of it is, is that the signals they have are very much lagging indicators of student success. So when you to talk to kind of educators in higher ed, they're looking at kind of did the students, you know, fail this class. But the problem is, is, you know, it's hard to support people when the outcome is already decided. It's much better to be providing that support when they need it. And so when you switch to leading indicators, which it sounds like Horizon is using, which is like engagement, attendance, behavior, right? And then providing support when they need it, uh, that's when you can have a massive, massive impact on completion rates and student success. So I really love to see that you guys are embracing that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exciting. I think, you know, a lot of online education to date has been sort of taking like what would be an offline experience and just porting it over online as opposed to recognizing how many additional things you can do in an online environment, like the number of touch points and data points that you have. Um, the fact that like learning doesn't have to be confined to that, you know, one and a half hour, whatever it is, live session, but can be persisted, you know, can persist throughout. And 
Um, you can have social engagements and social interactions throughout and answer people's questions at all different times. There's just, you know, it's, there's just still so much potential to sort of reimagine learning in an online setting that, that more fully takes advantage of what technology can do. Yeah, hundred percent. Julia, I know we're out of time now, but how can the audience keep up with you on social media and learn more about CoRISE? Yes, so come check us out. Um, we're at corise.com. We just officially announced or you know uh, launched yesterday. Um, and I please come check us out. Take our courses. Send me feedback if there's things that you like or don't like or wish that we had. It's we are feedback is gold for us at this point. So please send us our way. Um, and you can also follow me or follow us on on Twitter. Incredible. Julia, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, great to have you for this one, and we'll include all the links in the show notes. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much. Bye. If you enjoyed that episode, we would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.